Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Traveler's Podcast. I want to share a really special episode of the podcast with you. I'm on tour right now, which is why my voice sounds like this. I just got off stage in Washington, D.C. We had a really dope show and been having an amazing tour. And most of the time when we're on tour, we offer a VIP experience for people who opt for that uh, particular experience. We open doors about an hour early before the show starts. And people come in, we do an intimate musical performance for them. And then we spend about an hour just kicking it. And I answer questions that people have. We talk about things that are going on in my life, in my career, in the world, in the city that we're in. And it's a really beautiful experience. About a week or so ago, we did two intimate performances in Minneapolis at a small club called Ice House. And so it's only about 300 tickets. We did two shows. They sold out almost immediately. And we had about 100 VIPs. And I used to live in Minneapolis for a long time. That's where I launched my career. For the last two years, though, me and my family have been living in Istanbul, Turkey. And so this was a really dope homecoming. Uh, we had a, about 100 VIPs. And we just kicked it for about an hour talking about the things that have been going on in the world, in my career, in community, the spiritual reality of art and culture and music, etc. And I wanted to share that experience with you because it was really beautiful. It was a really beautiful conversation. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time setting it up. I'm also not going to interrupt these, uh, this session for ad breaks. Uh, but we're sponsored, as always, by the Zakat Foundation. I'm really honored and grateful to be in partnership with them. Go to Zakat US on social media, follow all the stuff that they do, or go to zakatfoundation.org and find ways to get down with them because it's a beautiful organization. They help people all over the world, and it's a really dope, really creative organization that I'm happy to be in partnership with. We're also sponsored this week by BetterHelp, and we receive a commission when you use our link to sign up with them. We're big proponents of therapy, and we believe that everybody deserves access to licensed, qualified therapists, and that's what BetterHelp does. If you go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash travelers, you'll be taken to an uh, online questionnaire that will help you determine what it is that might bring you to therapy. And then they also give you the opportunity to let them know the preferences that you have. Do you want a, a therapist that's a man or a woman or from a specific community or maybe people that specialize in certain areas and aspects of therapy? Then you get to choose your therapist. You also get to choose how and when you communicate with them. And if at any time you feel like this might not be the perfect fit, you just change therapists without any questions asked. So if you use our link, betterhelp.com slash travelers, you get a discount and we also get some support for the work that we do on the Travelers Podcast. So thank you so much for listening and enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast recorded live in Minneapolis. One, two, one, two. How's everybody doing? Peace and love. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Did they tell you guys go upstairs, or is he just doing that? <laughs> Albinism is not contagious. <laughs> I went upstairs, we went upstairs, and I walked in the green room, and there's no bright lights in the green room. The green room is the backstage area. And in most places, just like this one, it's really just a closet. 
that we get to hang out in, and, but we all sit there because you're not allowed to go there. So we just sit there because of the fact that we get some privacy and we don't have to be on when we're up there. But most of the time you walk in there and it's a closet and it just feels horrible. You sit in there with a bunch of boxes of straws and napkins and things like that. And you realize like, as a performer, I'm not much different than this box of straws. On a certain level, you know, in a way it can feel like, man, I'm just, I'm just one of the accessories for getting people in here to drink. But I walked upstairs, and there's a red light bulb in the, in the light. And I know, because he's my friend, and I'm flexing a little bit by saying that, that that's what Dave Chappelle does. And so my man, Mike Madsen, Bump Opera, came in and said, this red light is in here because of the fact that Dave Chappelle played here, and he asked for the red light in the backstage room. And so they just left it because of the, the legacy of the great Dave Chappelle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you have something you want to say, don't raise your hand because I'm legally blind and I can't see you. And it doesn't have to be only questions. It could be you're free to correct me or challenge me on something or add on to something that I've said. Or, uh, you know, you can't rap. Nobody raps but me. I'm the only rapper here. And that's just how it is for today. Because that's what it says on the ticket. So what do I want to ask? I, just, we got, I have a deep history with, with, with you, even though you don't know who I am, and our history is, I feel you through the music, man. And, um, Thank you. You also, during Ramadan, showed up at my house. Then it was 4033 Elliot. It was my dad had brought you in. He was the Senegalese Association of America. He, he started that. For some reason, you were there, right? Because uh, I'm Muslim and it was time to eat. No, nah, but you were speaking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because anywhere you, I am... You were, the, you were the imam. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking. You were speaking, yeah. man. You know, in the circle and, you know, on a pedestal and things like that. <laughs> uh, but um, to me, you're a top 10 all time. Thank Hip-hop you. Hip-hop artist. Thank you. You can, you can deny it. You can I don't. push to the side. You can, I don't. You can elevate some black artists if you want to. You're still... You might be top five, so... Um, you might you're be right. there with me. You're there with me. So how do you, in your, in, your, in your absence, right, how do you capture the things that, the, the moves that you've set over the course of the last 20 years plus and continue to rile up the people and be that source, the source of light mm-hmm. from, a, from, from, a, from a distant proxy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, where you at? How you doing? Man, I, <clears throat> I appreciate all of what you said. And I remember that day that you're talking about, <clears throat> believe it or not, I do remember. In terms of how I'm doing, I am broken and hopeful at the same time, which is uh, it's a good place to be for an artist, probably. Um, but it's both. You know what I mean? Broken and hopeful. And being broken is good, especially because we're here temporarily. From Allah we come to Allah we return. And while we're here, the creator has complete right to do with us whatever he sees fit. And it's all good. All of it is good. 
even pain, even pain is good. Even sadness is good, you know, and it's good to not feel entitled to the things that we've been given. I know somebody that I, you know, I helped this person convert to Islam and they're losing their vision. And every day they say, why would God do this to me? And I know they've never thought about the fact that I don't have their vision and have never had it. And at some point, they said, you know, I think this is really bringing me closer to God. And I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's really what it's all about. So for me, I'm struggling like everybody else. Yeah, like just like everybody else, I'm struggling. This is a very strange, difficult time to be alive. We all are like sperms trying to find an egg and the environment is hostile. This environment is trying to kill us. It's trying to kill our bodies. I go to Turkey for a couple months, I lose hella weight. I come back to America, I'm fat and my joints hurt. You can't understand what a place, what a thing is until you get out of it. And the feeling of isolation in this culture is like so deep. This is a deeply isolating place. You know, I can, I'm a public crier. And if I cry, everybody gets really uncomfortable, except for Courtney, because she's outdoing everybody and everything. Courtney's ass is so extra. <laughs> if I cry a little bit, she got to go to 10. I did two, you got to go to 10. Okay. No, I'm just, I just messed up. That's my friend. That's my friend. <laughs> if a person were to cry in public, which I do a lot, most people apologize for doing that. That's weird. You know, it's just a very fragmented culture because it's born in stealing native people's land after being welcomed and being, you know, I don't want to be welcomed. I don't want to share it with you. In no way do I mean to be pretentious or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm from this place. I moved here when I was 14, but this is the only place that's ever been home to me. You know what I'm saying? Before then, I moved all the time and I became this person here. So this is my home. And, I, and for me to say something about it, it's like I'm allowed to say that. I'm also allowed to say, it's weird. It's a weird place. And even when I was supposed to be the guy, I had this feeling, these, some of these people are elevating me because it makes them feel better, and they're really bragging without saying it about themselves. That's a Scandinavian thing. I'll never brag about myself because that's for New Yorkers to do. New York, they, like they do, that's for rappers and basketball players. I would never. But our community is the greatest community that ever was a community. You know what I'm saying? Our artists are the best. And everybody, sit in the current. Tell us about the great diversity of the, of the Twin Cities music scene. I say, you mother have been fronting on mint condition for 25 years. Mint condition can go to D.C. and sell out an arena. But because, because it's black, Mint Condition has made some, some of the great classic records of all time. But because, they're, because it's a black band and because you don't have a single white person in this city that can play like Stokely and like those guys, they don't get the love. How often are you playing Mint Condition on The Current? We'll be right back after so-and-so, so-and-so. Brother Ali will be at First Avenue. So I always had this feeling but I used to, every time I go outside my house, feel like I'm probably, somebody's probably going to recognize me. It's probably going to be for something good. You know what I mean?
So for this weird cancel culture, accountability culture, and all this, whatever you want to call it, for that thing to happen and just to be in a city where I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is a good thing, and it's also really strange. It's really strange. Um, you asked me some other stuff. Oh, uh, how do you be the source of people's joy? Because I'm not the source. I'm a, I'm a channel. I'm a conductor. I'm a custodian. Allah is the source. I'm not the source. So that makes it really amazing, a really amazing responsibility and also easy as hell at the same time. And when you say that I'm great, I'll take it because I don't know. I didn't create myself. So maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm one of the greatest. I'm definitely the, I'm definitely the greatest brother Ali, you know. You know what I'm saying? I don't know that. I don't know that. I was just talking to, I was just talking to my friend about this because he was like, man, I get, I get imposter syndrome sometimes. He's like, I'm sure you know what that's like. I'm like, no, I don't. But part of the reason is because I don't. I don't. I don't. I am very, very good at what I do. And the only time I'm not is when my voice is messed up or I'm just sad. But... The reason that I don't have that is because of the community that created me. Like, I was created by the people who created hip-hop, and I was taught by them and nurtured by them and loved by them and fought by them. I had to fight to get on the mic. Physically, not on Twitter. I do, the, my fights were not on Twitter. And my activism and organizing, when I went to jail and when the FBI comes to my house on my birthday and scares my daughters, and when I can't fly anywhere, and when I did Uncle Sam Goddamn on TV for the first rap song ever in the history of Iran, that wasn't on Twitter either. So anyone can say anything they want about me on Twitter. And it might be right. I never argued with anybody. I was considering everything. I was considering it all. Like, man, you might be right. I don't know. Yeah, I got a question on you. Uh, how did you come into working with G-Love and Special Sauce? There's a whole genre of reggae music that have no black people in it at all. It's, uh, it's just amazing at like white America's ability to refurbish black culture years after this popular and somehow be able to create a situation where there's, there's just no black people in it whatsoever. It's, it's amazing to me. And there's this whole genre of reggae artists that are like that. They, they, it's called Cali Roots Reggae, which is interesting. And I have a policy where I go everywhere I'm invited. And I come and I be me and I, I have my message and I have... We've been invited to play those festivals and things like that more and more and more. And um, we went and played one of those festivals. It was called Reggae Rise Up. It was in Florida, of all places. Reggae Rise Up. And, you know, we get there and the crowd is almost entirely white. The people on stage are almost entirely white. But they always have, like, Damian Marley, like, be one of the headliners. So it's like, see? Like the... <laughs> and so I said, you know, reggae rise up like you know and then said the just the basic stuff african people are the first human beings so they're the first ones to develop everything for every every human endeavor was created invented from the hearts souls minds bodies of african people 
And then those are the very people that were stolen and brought to America. And the, the system of the entertainment industry is a new creation, just like being white is only about 500 years old. That didn't exist. When people in these countries were rebelling, the people that had to work for a living were rebelling against landowners. It created something called whiteness that says, like, don't worry, poor people, you're in on it. You get to be part of it. Like, trust me. It's like, well, what do I get for it? Well, you get to feel better than other people. But what you're going to give up for that is your lineage, your heritage, and your culture. You're going to lose your culture. You're not going to know where you came from. So people that were stolen and, and brought in, being enslaved to America, it's like you don't get to know your people anymore. And once you go visit West Africa and you see like Mandinka people are amazing. And to lose that knowledge, to lose those languages, the languages are thousands of years old and they're very intricate. There's something about this like supremacy of modern people. There's like a chauvinism around modern people that we're the best people ever. And there's something there tied to the idea that adaptation is always evolution. The idea that like it's, it's always evolution, that what's later is always better than what came before. Because Europeans were the last people to adapt to, to moving to a place where nobody else wanted to live. And then the body had to adapt. So it grew hair because it's cold. It got light because there's not much sun. The nose thinned out because the air is cold to breathe. All of these things started to happen. So this idea that like every change is always evolution. That's a very European idea, you know. And so what you have is people, African people were robbed of heritage and language and lineage. And then European people just forgot it because it's like it's not that important anymore. So... We talk to people in Africa or in Persia, uh, Iran, or in Turkey, or in... People can name their ancestors sometimes back 30, 40 generations. I know descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that can name every one of their ancestors back to the Prophet Muhammad 1,400 years ago from memory. That's just part of what... That's supposed to be part of your inherited legacy. But European people can't do that anymore. Just because it's like, well, if I'm white, that means I should stop speaking Polish. I should stop speaking. Mike Madsen still speaks Polish, and he knows his people, and, and he married a woman from Poland. That's maybe why his art is so dope and why he's so community-minded. Human beings do that naturally. In Ireland, pre-white, before there was white, when Irish people were from their tribes, they had music, and it's dope. They had art, and it's beautiful. They had clothes, and they had dances, and they had all of these things. And you get this thing of white people can't dance. And I've performed for a lot of white people. And it's really true. There's like, the, the, the amount of instruction that is required to ask a, a white audience to clap on beat. It's like you're starting from scratch every day. Like, man, those people at TSA, they're, they're assholes because they have the same conversation 700 times every day. And when they're crazy, it's because they're talking to us like, I've said this all day. And it's like, I just got here. You said that to somebody else. But for most of them, it's like, I feel you. You have the same conversation over, shoes off, put on the belt. You got to take your computer out. No, you can't have so-and-so. You can't have that. You can't have this. You can't have that. As an entertain, as a, as a, I'm not an entertainer. I am a cultural worker. As a cultural worker, 
trying to have a room full of mostly European American people clap to a beat. You're starting from scratch. You're teaching the alphabet. One, two, three, four. Wait and clap and wait and clap and wait. It's like every day. As time goes on, certain stereotypes get less and less reliable. But there's two that remain. One of them is temperature. The other one is moving the body rhythmically. Eddie Murphy said, white people, do you dance to the words? What is going, what's happening? <laughs> and it's like, man, but white people, you, you can make fun of river dance if you want to, because maybe that's like the mall karate version of what that used to originally be. But there was culture. There was culture until this thing happened. So um, this is all about G-Love and Spam. <laughs> I know where I'm going. No, yeah. So this entertainment industry thing that we have is not culture. We have culture that feeds it, but the entertainment industry is an extension of slavery because losing culture and then having people come who inherently created culture, created singing, created drumming, created instruments, created stories, created language, created talking, created walking, created, like the first to have all the human stuff is first, including science, including astronomy, including mathematics, including all the things, that, including philosophy, including all of it. There's nothing's left out, except for, <laughs> except for, you know, dating apps and like, you know what I'm saying? But even that, why do those apps work? Who cares about TikTok? It's because of all those dances. You know what I'm saying? Why does anybody want to be on any of these apps? It's because of all the life that, that black people put into all of these things. So you have a, an industry around that stuff that's based on the idea that like, okay, maybe we don't own you anymore, but we have first right to sell and buy everything that comes out of you. You know what I'm saying? So you got these industries that do this over and over and over and over again. And one of the, one of the real evolutions that happened is that damn Eminem, real evolution. Elvis got on stage and won all the awards and was like, thank you very much, and just went home. And, he, and it drove him crazy. Eminem, when he won his first Grammy, he stood on stage and he pulled out a list because he knew that white America had never heard multi-syllable rapping. They didn't let an intricate rapper get on the radio until he came along. You can bust a move, you can, parents just don't understand, but Rakim is not gonna be on the radio. You know what I'm saying? And so Eminem was the first time that they did it. And he knew that all these people are like, this guy has elevated the art form. So he pulled out a paper and he read a list of names. Cool G Rap. He went, Lakim Shabazz. He went down all these people that, that a lot of hip hop enthusiasts don't even know. And he was comfortable doing that because he was really raised in the culture. Now he had a do-rag on when he did it, but you can't expect everything to be right right away. There was a do-rag. And I remember somebody saying like, man, you could leave that thing on all day, there'll be no waves. You're not gonna get any waves. <laughs> so I'm at Reggae Rise Up, and I said a very sh a shorter version of what I just said now. 
because it was not my own VIP thing. And what was deep, though, is that the people on stage are white, the people in the audience are white, but the stage hands are black. The people that are lifting everything and, twi- you know, doing all the heavy work. And so I said, what is reggae and what is reggae rising up against? You know what I'm saying? And I said, this can either just be a big cultural appropriation thing, it can just be a clown festival, or this can be an actual reggae rise up. And that depends on you and crickets. And some people left, right, Drew? Some people were just like, I'm going to see what's going on on the other stage. And they just were like... (laughs) And so then afterwards... We go to catering where all the artists eat together. Again, because the audience isn't allowed to be there. <laughs> so, like, so we go to catering, and everyone is coming to me, and they're just like, hey, man, just really want to thank you. Just really want to thank you for what you said. Just want to thank you for what you said. Thank you for what you said. And I'm like, okay, in about 45 minutes, you're going to have a mic. So now you can say it, too. And... The only one I'm aware of that said anything like that is Jackson from The Elevators. So I'm happy to be on that record. Uh, I wrote that rap in about seven and a half minutes because I just didn't feel, it didn't feel like the time to be like, this doesn't have to be like slavery and rape and theft of people, you know what I'm saying? So I just was like, hey, hey, back in the days, you know what I'm saying? But that was cool. I'm glad they did that. I'm glad they asked me to be on that song. I try to not make the answer so long. <laughs> All right, man. First off, uh, first time I saw you, I went to see Sage and Atmosphere, and I didn't even know who you were, and you stepped out and did that song, and it was freaking amazing. Okay. Uh, so my question is, uh, I know you've done stuff with uh, uh, Big Mike and Freeway and Chuck D, and like you're one step away from Jay-Z. And so what keeps this underground shit from going more mainstream. Like, what's, what's the wall there? Like, mm-hmm. like, these guys know you, and we know they know you, and we know these, these people can make it happen, but they don't make it happen. Like, what do you think? Why do you think that is? These, uh, which people could make what happen? Well, like, say Jay-Z, or, you know... Uh, Jay-Z could do what? Uh, do more to put on, put up underground stuff. So do you know that Jay-Z is behind Rhapsody and J. Cole? I did know that, I did know that. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, and I mean, that's a really important point that you're bringing up for a lot of reasons. Why are there a lot of amazingly talented people that have a lot to offer, but there's such a huge spectrum of how far it goes? That's the first question. The second question is, is there another artist that could change that for another artist? Could a bigger artist change that for me? So if Jay-Z put me on a record or, or promoted me or did whatever, could he change that? First, I'm going to say no. Now, would it help me? Yeah, it would help me. Would it make me cross over? Would I become a mainstream thing? I don't think so. There's so many layers of what it takes to be not only a creative person, an artist. That's its own thing. But then there's another layer to navigating the entertainment industry, the public, the media. Each one of these things is a labyrinth that if you can navigate any one of them on any level, it's a miracle. Like if a person can actually learn how to do an art form well enough to do it in front of other people, that's a miracle. 
So there are people that get up and like they sing and there are people that sing better than others. I know a woman named Drea Denor from Buffalo, New York. I'll put her up against any living singer now that Aretha and Amy Winehouse aren't here anymore. But I, like the, the tone and just the spiritual thing that happens when she sings in my body is like, I mean, uh, like, okay, put her in a room with Adele and just have them both sing the same song. And I'm not going to have to say a damn thing after that, especially if you're physically in the room. And Adele's bad. Adele's dope. There's something that that's one element of it. The next element of it is creating a song that actually can live in other people. Listen, it's a miracle to be able to just get up and do the thing. But it's another thing to be able to create a song that actually gives another person a moment in their life. That's the that's the that's the one of the next things. It's like so there's a lot of people that can rap and there's people in the Twin Cities. I rap better than Slug and Ali. Okay. Where's the song that you've made that somebody plays when their mom dies? Where's the song that you've made that somebody tattoos on you, on their body? Where's the song that like, so in order, it's, that's a whole other miracle because that requires a person to, to have this balance between having like a sense of gravitas that like people should be listening to me when I talk. But then also being so vulnerable that I'm going to explore my scared, terrifying secrets. And then I'm going to take these terrifying things that I don't even want to know about myself. Most of us have been thinking about therapy for years and we don't do it because we don't want to know what's in there. Most of us have been trying to work out for years. Me, I'm one of them. I just started. But it's like, I don't want to know why I won't pick stuff up and run and I don't know why, I don't want to know why I don't do that. I'd just rather not do it. A person has to look into the most terrifying secrets that they've kept from themselves in order to make art that gives another pe- person a moment. So if I'm dope and I'm on the mic, I'm having a moment, I'm giving myself a moment, and the people in the room might have a moment, but it's not going to leave this room. It can't translate out of this room. So if somebody's in this in a basement with their rapper buddies and they're rapping better than everybody else, you've given a moment to the people in that room, but it cannot be translated to anybody else. You dig inside yourself and find that. That's part one. Then the next part is, I'm going to put this, I'm going to create a piece of art that makes this secret I just told myself about me translate to other people. How the hell do you do that? Like, how do you make that secret translate to somebody else? Because there's a bunch of people that sit down and write all these complicated raps or or whatever. And it's just like, that's cool, but it's not translating to me. That's that's your travel log of something that happened to you. It didn't make me travel. This thing has to make another person travel inside themselves and be like, oh, my God, that's how I feel. Right? That's miracle number five at that point. So then, how does that thing navigate the entertainment industry that is built on slavery? It's a slave system. It's just from slavery, like like basketball and everything else. It's slavery. So, and they have an agenda. And so you got to do it, not only the industry, but then the media, whether it's social media or the news media or whatever. To get into the music industry is a, is a miracle in itself. 
To navigate media is a miracle in and of itself. And then also to be in a package that can be digested by a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? This is the thing. I was just asking Guru about this. What is it about Hove? What is it about Jay-Z? And the thing is that he always has been saying, I want to be digestible to everybody. I want 70-year-old white grandmothers in Iowa to know something about Jay-Z. You know what I'm saying? There's a moment where Jay is he, he's at the bar uh, in, in uh, New York. He was a part owner of the Nets, the, the, the New Jersey Nets. He moved them to help move them to Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets. And they built a, a stadium, and Jay-Z, as part owner of the stadium, part owner of the team, he's going there to do the first concert. He did like seven in a row or something. And one of the days he decides, I'm going to ride the subway to the concert. Jay-Z, in the height of Jay-Z-dom. So he gets on a train, he's got bodyguards and stuff, and he sits down next to this elder white lady. I don't know if somebody was like, hey, do you, can you please cut over here because we're filming this? And then, Who knows? But she's like, are you somebody I should know? And he's having this beautiful conversation with her. He's like, I'm a musician. I'm actually going to perform at the so-and-so. She doesn't know who he is yet. She's just this old white lady. And she goes, I'm very proud of you. Like, come on, man. It's so sweet. And she goes, are you a rapper I would know? Are you somebody I should know? And he says, uh, I'm, they call me Jay-Z. She goes, oh, I know Jay-Z. You're Jay-Z? And he's like, yes, ma'am. And she's like, oh, I- I'm talking to Jay-Z. You know what I'm saying? He did that. So he had to, 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 to do all of these things that like that is somebody that is chosen by God to do that. If somebody else does that many miracles or has that happen in their life, it's like that's a very, very special thing. Now, the other part of that is can Jay-Z transfer that to anybody? No. No. And there are people that say, well, like, you know, these other artists are gatekeepers. I'm telling you, I started out opening for Atmosphere. Then I opened for Brand Nubian. Then I opened for Rakim. Then I opened for Wu-Tang and Public Enemy. And then I opened for so-and-so. I opened for so-and-so. I opened for so-and-so. They had a bunch of other artists that fit their brand a lot better than me. They all say, when you walk on a stage, you change the room. It's different with you. You know what I'm saying? So that's cool. They put me on their stage. Then it's up to me. So like, what do I do after that? That's all they can do is let me get on stage. I've been headlining my own tours since 2007. I've brought a lot of people on tour. Every single one of them I like and love. I think they're dope. I want the people to know they're dope. I'm telling you, I've had three that translate to the crowd. Evidence, and evidence was already evidence. Evidence was already had, a, had big records. So I can't, I don't, that one doesn't even count. But he came from the world of like super traditional rap and then started rapping for, I mean, look around. This is not traditional hip hop audience. You know what I'm saying? It's just the truth. I've come to see it as a good thing. This is my work. This is where I'm supposed to be. But he had to translate it and he had to, he had to learn like, oh, I have to smile at people. I have to smile on stage. Because in the world he comes from, if you smile and you're not black, somebody steals the mic from you, punches you in the face, and then your black friends have to defend you and like, oh man, it's a whole thing. So, like, he's like, oh, I got to smile. I got to talk to the fans. Like, I have to connect with these fans or they're not going to. So, I'm saying he did actually start doing that on that tour. So, evidence translated. 
Cyrock translated. When Cyrock was on stage, nobody knew who she was. She came on stage burning sage. When we're in, you know, Alabama or something, it's like a bunch of dudes that don't look like Cyrock should be in the same room as them. And then there's three Cyrock fans that are not going to stay and watch me. It's very clear who's who. I'll never forget one of the days we were, we were in the South. We're in uh, uh, St. Louis. And uh, this white boy showed up with a dashiki on. And he was like, man, I wore this to let you and Saw Rock know that I'm supporting you. And I'm like, bless your heart. And I came, went back and said, there's a white girl there with a black girl with a dashiki on. He means it like this. And so, so, you know what I'm saying? But she translated every single night. Every night. The third one is Mally. And Mally is, is with us tonight. Out of all the amazing people I've brought on, on tour, those are the three that actually translated. All I can do is put them on my stage. It doesn't mean it's going to work. So I'm saying, Jay-Z, has, his company has supported Rhapsody. Rhapsody's ill. He can't make Rhapsody into Meg Thee Stallion. He can't do that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a person has to have a certain very specific set of things that they can do. So I'm saying it's important for us to know that because art is really all we have left to agree to, to come together on right now. It's the only thing that, our, that this society, I'm saying this as a person that lives in Istanbul now, this culture is very, very here is very isolating. And we don't have anything in common, like less and less and less and less and less. And the one thing that we still have is art. Okay. Just you, wanna, gotta, you gotta cut me off because I'm not gonna stop. Sorry, I'm too polite. Uh, I just wanna take it back to your earlier comment about white people not having rhythm. Uh, my mother is a piano teacher in Colorado and she's always like, the kids are not all right. Like these kids don't have rhythm. Yeah. And I was like, well, why, like what's going on? Like, like are they not playing drums at home? Or like, what's the deal? My mom's like, no, they don't even listen to music at home. Right. And I was like, this is, it's insane to me. Like the idea of like not, yeah. building that rhythm from like an early age, but yeah. my mom's a piano teacher, so it makes sense. Anyway, um, the question I have for you is what have you been reading or what, you know, poetry or literature, whatever it is that has really stuck with you that you're like, man, I just wish more people would read this. Yeah, it's tough. Like it's mostly, uh, thank you for, for, so first I'll say, as it with everything else, when we're talking about white people and what Dave always says is, Brother Ali is the whitest of all the whites. And he's also the blackest motherfucker I know. It's hilarious. It's so funny. But one of the things about the whites is that, is that you always can find amazing individuals, but the communal thing is not happening. You know, and Rezma Menachem, who's a... One of the people that should be known around the world, Rezma Menachem is a, a, a racialized trauma expert. He's a therapist. And he's he wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. So if anybody hasn't read that, check that out. He was also on, the, on our podcast. But he lives in the Twin Cities, and he's a nat national treasure. And one of the things that Rezma says is, I know a lot of really cool white individuals. He's like, I cannot name a single white group that my body feels safe with. So you're talking about like, what is culture? Like just being divorced from the idea of culture in general. 
Because that's the thing about rhythm, is rhythm brings the bodies in harmony in a room full of people. So if people can move with rhythm, melody doesn't always do that. But rhythm does it, where our bodies are moving, we're breathing together, we're moving together. It's a very communal thing, rhythm. You know, in this music thing, they put the drums in the back. But the drummer used to be the main one. The one speaking would be playing a drum or sitting on it. What Rezma says is that, and he's right, is that to even understand what culture is about, the Ku Klux Klan has songs that they sing that matter to them. They have colors they wear. They have stuff they do when people are born. They have stuff they do when people are die. They have stuff they do at their weddings. They have stuff that they do. And these cultural things binds the hearts of people together around racism and white supremacy. There's no anti-racist white culture. There's individuals, but there's not a culture in terms of really living life together. You know, so we talk about who's going who's gonna to bury you? How are you going to do that? Now, me and Rezma also have a difference of because for me, Islam is that. For me, Islam is like I birthed my children. I have washed the bodies of my elders when they die. We don't embalm our people when they die. We wash their bodies, we wrap them, and we put them in the ground ourselves. So the people that taught me this religion, when they died, I washed their bodies and I put them in the ground. And that's why you find, because I'm sure like if your mom is teaching them and if it's bothering her, it's because she notices it. And anytime you talk about white people, it doesn't matter how white you are. You talk about white people and people are like, well, you're very defensive. Except for the white people who already know what you're talking about. And those people are like, my God, can we please? You know what I'm saying? They're like, thank you. And so really what Resma talks about is intergenerational embodied culture with people being together. And it's hard to do because when white people get together, the only collective emotion that white people are able to show is anger. You're only allowed to be angry together. Or you can cheer on a victory at a sporting thing. We defeated them. But like collective joy, collective is, is only happens in music and, and in, in art. And those are black art, art forms, you know. Uh, so what am I reading? Lately, there's been a lot of comedy. I love, I love, I really am just in love with comedy. And um, Islamic lectures. That's kind of like my... You know what I mean? Yeah, in terms of books, though, I would say Resma has My Grandmother's Hands, and also he has one called The Quaking of America. Yes, sir. The first time I heard you on the radio, I thought you were black. Uh -huh. I'm like, this, this brother has a lot of soul. Uh -huh. Until I saw your face, I'm like, is this Ali? Whitest of the whites. <laughs> and then I started sounding like you because I'm an inspiring artist. Uh -huh. My man told me, like, yo, son, you sound like Ali. I'm like, I'm from Minnesota, though, man. Yeah. But I started sounding like you. Where yeah. did you find this voice? What inspired you to have this voice, this preacher um, voice? Here's the thing for anybody that wants to be an artist. Doing art doesn't make a person an artist. There's a thing, there's a reality about being an artist where there's no choice. It's not a choice. To be an artist is to be in danger. You're always on the precipice of being canceled. You're always on a precipice of people saying whatever they say. Because a, an artist is a very particular spiritual calling. It's like being a teacher. It's like being a doula. It's like being, and being a white rapper is like being a male doula. 
You might be good. You might be good at it, but it's not the same. So the thing is, if a person is going to actually be an artist, you'll do it long enough to where you find your own voice and you won't sound like anybody anymore. And that, that takes a long time. Some people do it for life and they never figure that out because there's a different thing that happens on the level of being that will make it so that you won't be able to sound like somebody else. And when, we had, when, when people lived in villages and communities, there was apprenticeship. If you wanted to do something, if you showed you had an acumen to do something, they'd send you to sit with the village master. And they would teach you and you would, you would do their style of pottery or whatever it is. And then after a while, once you mastered, they would give you permission to operate on your own. And then you would develop your own style. And then you'd have students. That's what a real community thing would be. You know what I mean? But because we lack that most of the time, what we do is we listen to artists that touch us and we just make music in that vein until and if we get to that next point. So the only thing with a gift is just to be a custodian and just do it, 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 do it. And you knock on the door. That's the way that the creator is. You knock on the door. You don't know when the door is going to be opened. You don't know if it'll be opened. No expectations, just knocking. That's what praying five times a day is. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You know what I'm saying? And that's what practicing that craft is. You're knocking on the door. Maybe you get the gift and the death sentence of being an artist. It's death. It's just ego death after ego death. It looks like, yeah, they're propping up your ego. But really, that doesn't happen unless you just you become this like thing that people have an opinion about. So, yeah, and that's the other thing. If you're doing it because you want attention, you're not going to get there. If you're doing it because you want money, you're not gonna, it's not going to happen for you. You might get a little burst of energy if you get the right opportunity, but you're not going to last. The only thing is if you do it for the love of doing it because something inside you has to do it. And that's, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And you have my sympathy if that happens. <laughs> we can do one more quick one. I know Drew's not happy about it, but we'll... Yeah, you guys, stop making the answers so long. No, I'm just joking. You guys are making the answers so good. All right. Ask me something dumb. Go. I got you, I got you, I got you. Um, just thanks for making music and such. Uh, your podcast is really cool. I specifically liked your episode with Vinny Paz. But, um, so you're like an underground rapper. We could agree on that. But, um, is there... (laughs) Well, yeah. But, um, is there like a rap artist that you really mess with that we wouldn't expect you to mess with? Like, are you a big Drake fan? Drake is one of the greatest that ever did it. Drake is one of the greatest that ever did it. I have Drake lyrics... transcribed on my phone hold on and we're talking about cancel culture okay or just i hate that word you say that word you sound like a joe rogan guy i don't mean to be that and nothing against him but that's just not my that's not my thing hold on i'm gonna uh, missing out on my years that's how it starts okay drake had a son and he made a hint about it in his music. I only love my mom and my bed, I'm sorry. My bed is the name of his kid. 
his son. Pusha T dissed him, and he said, you've been hiding your son. These are Drake's lyrics, okay, that I, that I listened to and transcribed in the notes app on my phone because of how dope they are. Okay. I'm albino, so I'm partially blind, so I might read weird. Missing out on my years. There's been times when I wish I was back when I wished I was here. Alone. Bow. Yes. The, anybody that's that, that, that journey I'm talking about, the part that you're in now is funner than what you're looking at. That's the funnest part. That's the funnest part. When you're just with your friends like, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do something. You know what I'm saying? When you're in the basement with your friends, that's, it's, it's the fun part. Uh, missing out on my days, scrolling through life and fishing for praise. Opinions from total strangers take me out of my ways. I try to see who's there on the other side. Most time it's just somebody that's underage and probably uh, alone and afraid, lashing out so that someone else can feel their pain. I always hear people complain about the place that they live, that all the people there are fake and they got nothing to give because they've been staring at somebody else's version of shit that makes another city seem more exciting than it is. I knew a girl, <laughs> I knew a girl whose one goal was to visit Rome. Then she finally got to Rome and all she did was take pictures for people back home. <laughs> I know another girl that's crying out for help, but her last caption is, leave me alone. What? Dude, this is amazing. This is like, this is incredible. This is, I, I wish I could have written this, okay? I know a girl who's happily married till she puts down her phone. I, I don't know why she's, he's making all these girls. This is a, you know what I'm saying? Why they all gotta be girls? Like dudes don't lie on Instagram. He makes them all girls, whatever. That, nobody's 100% except for the Prophet Muhammad in my eyes. All right. I know a girl that <laughs> saves pictures from places she's flown so she can post them later and make it look like she's still on the go. Look at the way we live. I wasn't hiding my kid from the world. I was hiding the world from my kid from empty souls who just wake up and look to debate. Until you're staring at your seed, you could never relate. Breaking news in my life, I don't run to the blogs. The only ones I can tell are the ones I can call. They always ask, why let the story run if it's false? You know a wise man once said, nothing at all. Dude, that's the last two years of my life. That's the last two years of my life. And Drake's, whatever you want to say about Drake, like, he wrote that. Rakim didn't write it. Pharaoh Marsh didn't write it. Drake wrote that. I, I, like, I know, I know that. I know what you're talking about. Drake Aubrey Graham wrote these lyrics. You have to have lived it. You have to have lived it. A ghostwriter can't write this. Drake wrote 90% of the music he made. I also work with Jake One, who works with Jake. And I know a lot of people that work with Drake. You know what I'm saying? Drake wrote most of his stuff. He also has a team of writers. I'm saying... Uh, most of our favorite MCs didn't write every word that they ever said. It's this weird thing that we have now where, like, he's got a ghostwriter. That's a whole other conversation. You have to have lived this to have written this. Drake's got a bunch of music that don't do it for me, that, that doesn't do it for me. But I can acknowledge that this guy, and he's a great performer. I saw him at the Target Center make it look like Ice House, make it feel like Ice House. Like, he's talking in low tones, and he's, like, walking and talking to people. And I'm like, dude, I feel like, I feel like it, it feels like an intimate show. Ghostwriters can't do that. Ghostwriters, if it was as easy as getting a ghostwriter, everybody would have a ghostwriter and have 170 hits like that man has. It's not that easy. You know what I'm saying? But the fact that that guy wrote this, it's like, 
on a human level, it's like, man, there's a human being inside and there's an artist inside him that's driving all that stuff. Even if it's weird, there is an artist heart in there that's got to be an artist. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, the only way that I know how to be is just whatever, whatever is heaviest and whatever is most present in what I'm dealing with, that's what I talk about when I'm with people. So I say all of that. I'm very happy to be here tonight. When I talk about you never want to complain, you never want to complain to the people who are the exceptions and the healers, you know what I'm saying? So however, what I'm, what I'm talking about, about being in my hometown right now, you all are the reason that I'm here, and you all make me feel very, very good. And I'm very, very thankful for you being here. We got a dope lineup tonight. I'm gonna host the show tonight. Everybody, is, everybody that's here tonight is here because I love them, they're my real friends, and I asked them to be here. We're here tonight for collective joy. Collective joy, that's the name of the, that's what it's all about. We're here tonight for collective joy. We're not gonna feel guilty about it. We're here because the creator or the universe or the will or whatever, however you say it, we're here because Allah put us in a room together and chose and wrote before anything ever happened that the 300 people in here tonight, that's who's meant to be here. So thank you and we love you and have fun tonight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to like and share and subscribe and comment and rate and all that good stuff. It really does help the podcast reach more people. And that's what we're here to do, to create and to foster communication and, to, and connection between people. So all of that means a lot to us. We're brought to you by the Zakat Foundation. Make sure to follow them. Check them out online. They do amazing work around the world. So look into it and find ways that you can contribute participate, get down with that incredible work. We're also brought to you by betterhelp.com slash travelers. When you use that link, you'll have access to their huge network of licensed and qualified therapists. It'll take you directly to the, the questionnaire so that you can find a way for you to get down with therapy and just have access to that. Uh, you'll get a discount for using that link, betterhelp.com slash travelers. And also they support the show when you do that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Amna Mirza, to Mansour Panawala, to Last Word, to Darian Washington, to Aida Rashid, to Chaplain Shane Atkinson, to all the people that support this show in a variety of different ways. The Travelers Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. And it's a production of Travelers Media. Much love to you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.